0: Okay, excellent. All right, so this is the first Sunday of of sabbatical. Um, I almost said sabbatical. But yes, it is the first Sunday of sabbatical, and uh, we're really excited. I mean, Matt Larson is here to bring the word. You all know Matt. Um, And Matt actually, he went through sabbatical, not that long ago. And so Matt's going to share a bit about sabbatical as well as bring the word this morning. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and invite Matt up. You guys all know Matt. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Alex. Uh, you know, he said you all know me. I don't know that you all necessarily know me. Like that might be true, but that might also not be true. So uh, yeah, my name is Matt Larson. Uh, I'm the lead pastor up at Anthem Church in Thousand Oaks. And um Two years ago, we took a sabbatical, and uh, it's really exciting for me to see Kevin and Keely, and uh, soon to be the kids as well, out on sabbatical. Um, I don't, I don't know what it's like for you guys. If maybe this is the first time you're hearing about the fact that Kevin and Keely are gone, probably not, because I think it's been quite a build-up over the last few months. Um, but one of the things that was really important to us at TO uh, was just to talk through with the church like the importance of a of a sabbatical and. Um, a lot of people had a negative view of them. Like, hey, uh, yeah, I was at a church and the pastor went out on sabbatical and then he came back and left. Uh, I went out on, uh, I had a pastor that went out on sabbatical and then the elders fired him while he was gone or something like that. Just like all these horror stories about uh, about sabbaticals. And so when we announced that we were going on sabbatical, there was a lot of, there was genuinely a lot of fear uh, in people in the church. And it was really exciting for us to to try and reframe that for people. Like, this is a discipline for us to take a sabbatical. It's not easy to take, you know, three months off, especially because it's not a three-month vacation. Like, there's stuff being done in the meantime, spiritually, deep work, internally, rest, finding rhythms with your family, those types of things. It's really, like, a, an important thing. And so for us to to actually go out and say, uh, this is not out of desperation, but out of discipline and and, and the pursuit of health and longevity in the Lord, uh, was really I think a, an encouragement. Um, Alex asked me to share just a how you guys could be praying for Kevin and Keeley as people that have been out on sabbatical. How could you be praying for them? Uh, and I think the the biggest thing that I want to encourage you guys to be praying for is uh, that they would find deep rest in Jesus that uh, you know sometimes there 's this pressure that you would go away and come back like Moses from Mount Sinai with a glowing face and ten commandments for for the church to now live by and honestly. Uh, for them, like just that the Lord would remove expectations and that they would find just deep rest and refreshment in the Lord, I think would be uh, the greatest thing that you could be praying for them in these months. Uh, and then he also asked me to share, just like for you as a church, what what do you do while Kevin and Keely are out on this sabbatical? And I, I started to look at this right here, and I thought that this is probably uh, your role. Like when you think about your role as a part of the church, the hope for the elder team, the hope for the leadership is that you would, you would take ownership of like the life of the body. That you would say, you know, we're not, we're actually here to build community. We're not just going to survive the summer. We're going to like thrive this summer. That you guys would be the hosts, the inviters, uh, the people that are, that are deeply connected to one another and stirring one another up to love and good works and finding great joy and um, camaraderie in being the body of Christ together. And this is like a, a pathway for doing that. Actually, the, the creation of opportunities to connect. So I just encourage you this summer to go out of your way to build uh, not just to wait and hope that Kevin and Keeley come back. Not that that's what everybody's doing. I don't know why that came into my head. But that you would actually be proactive in saying, all right, we, we want to be investing in the church deeply over the course of these next few months. Does that sound like a plan? I don't know what I expect when I ask those kinds of questions. If you would just be like, yeah! But sometimes just the aff- affirmation of a yes is sufficient. But, you know, I think I'm just an excitable individual. And so... Um, You know, I think I expect big, loud responses, but no, that that wasn't an appropriate question for a big, loud response. So, all right, all that to say, welcome to uh, Anthem Church here in Camarillo. Uh, I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to take a moment and pray for Kevin and Keely, and then we're going to dig into the scriptures today. Uh, Jesus, we just want to thank you for uh, the time together today. Uh, We just ask that you would bless it, that you would use it for your purpose, for your glory. Uh, Jesus, we want to lift up the Bailey family to you. They have been diligent and faithful um, in their 10 plus years of service with Anthem Church and their many, many years of service to you, Jesus, their king. And I just pray that as they are out on sabbatical, that this would be a time of deep, deep refreshment. Like soul refreshment, Jesus, would you meet them in a powerful way? Uh, In the different places that they are, even now, just for Kevin and Keely as they're away in Mexico, just just with each other, I pray that there would be such refreshment that takes place in their marriage, that there would be an investment into that relationship, that it bears fruit for years to come. Uh, Lord, and in the months ahead between Montana and Mammoth and the different places that they will be, I just pray that you would... Uh, do great work in their family, that each of those kids would feel your presence, would know, Lord, that you are watching over them and caring for them, uh, and that you have a a story, a long story of faith for this family. Uh, We love you, Jesus, and we praise you. Pray that you would bless our time this morning in your name. Amen. All right, so we are in 1 Corinthians. Uh, If you've been with Anthem Church here in Camarillo for the last few months, you've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians. We've been all the way up through chapter 8, including last Sunday, Memorial Weekend, up at the Campout, where Bert taught chapter 8. Uh, if you weren't at the camp out, or even if you were, it, it's, a, it's a different kind of experience to get an outdoor message. you got your kids running around. There's, you know, rain threatening, that type of a thing. So we're going to do a little bit of a recap of chapter 8, and then we're going to dive into chapter 9. But before we even get to that, just want to, like, reset some of the big picture things that are going on in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, Paul's writing to a church that can feel, when you read through the book... If you read through the whole letter, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1-16, through chapter 16, it can feel like a very broken church. Have you ever read through it and just thought, man, this place is messed up? Alright, one of the things that we've found is that it is incredibly important for us to go through this letter with the humility of knowing that if there were an apostle writing a letter to us, and we've said this in Thousand Oaks, if there were an apostle writing a letter to us, there would be a series of key things that, that would need correction in our church. Like, it's not that we have it figured out and Corinth was this messed up church. They had issues that they had to deal with, absolutely, and Paul is bringing course correction to those, but we need that as well. And so part of going through a letter like 1 Corinthians is having the humility to open ourselves up and say, Lord, we want you to examine us. We want you to look at our hearts, to look at our way, to look at what we are doing as a church, and we want to be humble enough to say, what do you want to teach us? Where do you want to shore us up and, and correct the, uh, the things that we're thinking, the ways that we're living that are not in line with what you're doing? And so even if you read through Corinthians and you're like, okay, we just don't struggle with these same things. Chapter 8, we just don't really deal with food sacrifice to idols. Uh, you look at that and say, okay, maybe it's not that specifically. But what is behind that? What, are, what is Paul trying to get at this church uh, that, that we can learn from, that we can grow from and apply to our own lives? So, thinking about that, with 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul writes and says, Let's talk about food sacrifice to idols. And basically, over the course of the 13 verses of chapter 8, he says, I'm not talking about food sacrifice to idols. He is, but he's not. He says, I want to use this as an issue to essentially communicate to you that what you have as rights as a follower of Jesus are not the most important thing about being a follower of Jesus. But actually learning to understand those rights and then lay them down for the sake of the gospel, that's what real maturity looks like. So to get started, I want you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, just to, uh, to kind of set the table for our day today. So if you have your Bibles, go Ephesians. I know you're saying, wait, you just said First Corinthians. Sometimes I go to other places in the Bible. All right? So Ephesians, if you're wondering where that is, just think God eats peas and carrots. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. It's right there in the Eats, all right? Here we go. Uh, You guys didn't need that information. That's just what comes to my head. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11, says this. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood or personhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children, skip down to verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Paul's goal his idea for every church that he interacts with is to grow them to maturity in Christ. He's working hard, him alongside the uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. He himself is an apostle. He himself is a teacher. And he is working alongside prophets and evangelists and shepherds to equip the saints for the work of ministry to build them up to maturity in Christ. Well, part of this is actually understanding what does maturity in Christ look like. And that's what we get in 1 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 is Paul helping a church understand what does true maturity look like in Christ. So let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and we will spend the rest of the day in this chapter. We're going to read through the whole thing. 1 Corinthians 9, well not the whole thing, verses 1 through 18. We'll get to the rest in the next couple of weeks. I won't get to be with you but you have a lineup of incredible teachers that will be walking you first through 1 Corinthians this summer. Um, So let's do verses 1 through 18. Paul writes and he says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, that's Peter? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say that? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. It is for oxen that, uh, I'm sorry, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written, For our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rites Nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I will have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching... I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. All right, this is a fascinating passage and a powerful passage. Paul uses 17 rhetorical questions to try and get a point across. Anybody ever have a teacher that uses rhetorical questions and you just... Don't really know if you're supposed to answer or not. Uh, This is a letter, so they're not supposed to answer. It's pretty easy. But you can imagine them sitting in a church, gathering and listening to this letter being read and maybe answering or grumbling their answers as Paul goes through these 17 different questions. But it's designed to elicit a, a response. It's kind of like a a, a logical tool or a debate tool. Although this is a one-sided tool, Paul is actually trying to communicate to them, getting them to say yes, 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 or no, 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 no. He's trying to get their answer to be incredibly obvious. So the questions that Paul's asking, he's not genuinely trying to get answers to these questions. When he says, am I not an apostle, he's not trying to get the Corinthians to, to think, Okay, what is the definition of an apostle again? Does Paul fill that? It, what's his job description? Is he more pastoral? Like, it's not a debate. When Paul asks, am I not an apostle? His anticipated answer from the Corinthians is a resounding, yeah, of course you're an apostle, Paul. And so Paul asks these questions, and it makes for such, a, such an interesting uh, conversation because he's laying this groundwork for uh, an idea He's building up this idea in their minds that is so clear and so compelling. I am an apostle. Apostles have rights. We deserve to get paid. Anybody that preaches the gospel deserves to get paid for the preaching of that gospel. Nobody would expect a soldier to go out and fight a war and serve at his own expense, to pay for his own food, pay for his own weapon, pay for his own uniform. That's not how the military works. Nobody would expect that a farmer goes out and does all the farming without being able to enjoy the crop. Uh, we go apple picking up in San Luis Obispo in, in the fall. It's really uh, quite delightful. And uh, it's this really fun thing where you go take a basket and you can pick apples all day, every day, and they don't care how many you eat. They tell you that. Yeah, you just want eat, to eat them along the way. Just go for it. It's wonderful. And you get so sick of apples by the end of it, but that's just part of it. If you're out there, Uh, kind of gleaning from the crop, of course you're going to partake in it. That would be the expectation of anybody that works a field or anybody that tends a flock. So Paul's just trying to make it abundantly clear. Look, we have every right when we come into Corinth, Barnabas and I, to have financial provision for the work that we do. And not only for us, but if we had a wife as well, which both Barnabas and Paul uh, were seen to be single. Peter had a wife. uh, The brothers of Jesus had a wife. And so you... Sorry, you get this understanding that so many people that were working in the ministry were going along with their spouse and it was expected that they would be financially provided for. And so Paul's laying all of this out there and saying, but that's not the, that's not the point. I'm not here trying to argue for us to get paid. In fact, I laid down that right so that there would be zero obstacles in the way of the gospel. And at that point, when you get to uh, verse 12, where Paul says, nevertheless, and we'll go back through each of these things. But when Paul says this in verse 12, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. That's where we start to see the crux of the passage. And not just this passage, but First Corinthians 8 and 9. And I don't know that every teacher is going to follow this thread so closely, but I want you to stick it in the back of your heads that chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13 are all connected to this same idea. So by the time you get to... 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which if you're married, all of you probably had read at your weddings, uh, the idea of 1 Corinthians 13 is way less about marital love and what it means to love a spouse and way more about the kind of love that Paul is calling on the church to live by in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, this love that builds up in the church that we are seeking to encourage one another. And this is where I'm going to take a moment and I'm going to go back and look, at, and look at chapters 8 and 9 together in one big context through the lens of a parable that Jesus tells. So if you have your Bibles, and I'm sorry I didn't give you guys this scripture, but if you have your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 13. This is the parable of the sower. Uh, you might be familiar with the parable of the sower. Uh, it's basically this story that Jesus tells about a sower that goes out to sow his seed. And as he sows this seed, The the seed lands on different soils. Verse 4, Matthew chapter 13, verse 4, it says, And as he sowed, some seeds fell among the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Just a little bit later, Jesus explains that parable, starting in verse 18. He says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. Sort of hardened soil it doesn't go in very quickly or very easily, and the enemy comes and just plucks the seed of the gospel off the well-worn path as it lands in, those, in that kind of soil. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. So here's the gist of what's going on in 1 Corinthians and in Jesus' parable. Jesus tells a story about the gospel of the kingdom going out and landing on different soils. Now, I don't know if you've been a a follower of Jesus for an extended period of time, but if you have, you've probably seen and experienced friends, people that you know and love that have heard the gospel, and their experience has been like these different soils. Some hard hearts, they just want nothing to do with it, and the enemy just takes that gospel away. It's like it never even landed in their ears. Some who receive it so quickly and they're so excited and zealous and and overjoyed. Sometimes they're the most passionate worshipers, the most excited missionaries. They can't wait to travel the world and tell people about Jesus. And within a year or two years or three years, they're nowhere to be found. They've stopped walking with Jesus. They've disappeared off the face of the Christian planet. And others who give their lives to Jesus and are genuinely making a run at it. But over time, their career, their education, their family the cares of the world start to grow up around that gospel and start to choke it out and it starts to lose its life and its vibrancy and its fullness that it once had and eventually it becomes completely overtaken by the cares of the world. Jesus tells this story and he's trying to encourage people to understand the nature of how we receive the gospel. He calls this good soil that takes roots and that grows and bears fruit. So fast forward to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. In chapter 8, he's telling people about food sacrifice to idols. And he gets to this place in verse 9 where he says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Now that word weak has thrown a lot of people off over the years. Because we start to think of it as maybe like uh, weak morally. They can't make good moral decisions, so we're leading people into sin. But that's actually not what Paul's talking about when he references weakness. He's actually talking about these people who have tender soil. And not tender in the sense of good, like it's about to take root, but tender in the terms of, it's one of those three soils where the gospel has not yet taken root in their life. And the potential exists for one of these things to actually remove the gospel's impact from their lives. The enemy, the cares of the world, or simply that there's no ability for the roots to take shape in their life. And it just washes away quickly or burns away quickly. So Paul's writing, and he's saying, you have a responsibility. Those of you that are good soil, in whom the roots of the gospel have taken place, you have a responsibility that as mature followers of Jesus, you are not about declaring your rights. You are understanding the true nature of maturity, and that is laying your rights down so that the gospel can be built up in other people's lives. It's like, look, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're like, man, Jesus has set me free. I used to not be able to eat meat sacrificed to idols or when I did, it was part of a pagan ritual and now I can do it because I know there's no idols behind those things. There's no actual forces going on. There is one true God, so I can do whatever I want and there's this kind of joy in our freedom in Christ. And that's actually part of the maturing process is understanding the freedom that you have in Christ. But Paul says, don't let it stop there. True maturity, if you want to keep growing to become like Jesus, is about laying your rights down in love so that you can build others up for the sake of the gospel. So fast forward to chapter 9. Paul says all of these things. He's, he's built up to this point and now he wants to put some uh, skin in the game to use a, a metaphor that I have no idea where it came from. Uh, he wants to put some skin in the game. He actually wants to... to Put himself out there and say, this isn't me just saying to you guys, stop with the food and the idols and that stuff. He's actually now saying, I, I've, I've lived this way as well. I want you to see that I lived a life that was so focused on helping people understand the nature of the gospel. That in love, I laid down rights so that the gospel could take root in you. Now you go and do the same. That is what 1 Corinthians 9 is all about. So Paul asks all these questions. Am I not free? Sure, Paul, you're free. Of course, Jesus set you free. That would be the expected answer. Am I not free? Can I do the things that I want to do? Paul will go on to say something like, uh, to me, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. There's this sense in Christ that like, we've been released from the law. We've been released from this kind of bondage to a a set way of life. And now we walk by the spirit. And that can be applied and abused in certain ways. Paul says, am I not free? Yes, Paul, you're free. Am I not an apostle? Yes, Paul, you are an apostle. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? We know your story, Paul. You were a witness to the risen Christ. You bear witness. You testify to his resurrection. Are you, are not you my workmanship in the Lord? Yeah. Paul, you did, uh, you did the work of the gospel in our church. We are here because of your faithfulness. If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles or the brothers of the Lord and Cephas or Peter? Isn't this what you would expect from any apostolic leader that we would we would come into a city that you would financially support us as we preach the gospel honestly you can use 1 Corinthians 9 as a defense for financial support for apostles and missionaries and pastor elders like you can build because paul is using A good hermeneutic to actually build a defense for why people who make their living from the gospel should be supported by the people that are benefiting, that are are growing from that gospel work. Paul's like, absolutely, 100%, you have every right in Jesus, we have every right in Jesus, to be financially supported to do the work that we're doing. Paul says, do I say these things on my own authority, on human authority? No, this is in the law. This is what God has said from the beginning. And he goes back to the Old Testament, and this is used multiple times in the Scriptures to defend people being able to receive that are workable. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Basic premise, the the ox treads the grain, basically runs this giant wheel that gets the grain all ground up, and the ox is not muzzled, has the freedom to eat the grain as it treads the grain, all right? Makes you want to eat a loaf of bread, doesn't it? Uh, that's just the nature of how an oxen works in this giant uh, treading wheel. I don't know what this stuff is called, you guys. I'm not an agriculturalist. But it's something big that the oxen pulls. And basically, the ox has a free reign to eat as it goes. That passage is in the middle of Deuteronomy, where frequently the caretaking of people is being talked about. There's zero concern for animals in this run-through Deuteronomy, And so Jesus and Paul have freely taken this passage and said, God's not talking about the ox when he puts this in the law. He's actually talking about people. He's using this as a picture so that those that serve the Lord will actually be able to serve the Lord fully and completely. And then he goes on to talk about how that was applied in the Old Testament by Israel. Those that serve at the temple and those that serve at the altar are able to eat freely from what's given to the temple and what's given at the altar. Uh, The meat that was given in sacrifice, uh, the Old Testament law allows the priesthood uh, to eat freely from that. The grain that's brought for grain offerings, uh, after it's offered up, they're allowed to eat freely from that. That's part of the system that God put into place. Why does Paul build all this up? And everybody that's listening is like, yeah, Paul, we get it. You can imagine, 17 rhetorical questions. It's like, <laughs> enough, Paul. We get the idea. We know what you're trying to say. And then Paul gets to verse 12, and he says, If others share this rightful claim on you, do, we not, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So Paul actually had a series of different funding models for his apostolic work. Uh, From time to time, he would go into a city, and there were times that he received from the city that he was serving. That was not uh, uh, like something that he chose never to do. There were times that he would actually receive from the church that he was serving. Uh, But we know at least with Corinth and with Thessalonica that Paul made a specific point to take nothing from the church that he was serving. He wanted to make sure that there was zero obstacle in the way of the gospel, Uh, To the Thessalonians, he says, we worked night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you. We did not want you to think that we were coming in just to get money from the gospel. We wanted to remove that obstacle that you think we're out here preaching just so that we can make a living. That's not why we do this. We are allowed to make a living from preaching, but our motivation is the gospel. And Paul said, to prove that our motivation is the gospel, we came in and we worked like crazy to make sure that you didn't experience any hesitation about receiving Jesus. Oh, this guy's just here to make a buck. This guy's just here because he's getting a salary. He has zero interest in me. He has zero interest in Jesus. He has zero interest in the kingdom of God. He's just making a living like all of us are making a living and he found his way to do it. Paul's like, I wanted to make sure that you couldn't say that. So I didn't take a dime from you. I laid down my rights as an apostle to receive from the gospel work that I was doing so that you couldn't have any catch in your heart about what I was doing or why I was doing it. I wanted you to see pure motives, gospel motives, so that you could receive the gospel purely. This is part of the contextualization work that Paul would do. He would go into a city and he would understand that city One of his funding models was to receive from the church that he was pouring into. One of his funding models was to be what's called bivocational, where he would work all day as a tent maker and then minister all night as an apostle. And that's what he took on in Corinth. And that's how he met Aquila and Priscilla, who were also tent makers. They would go and they would work. They had a business. They sold tents. They made them. They patched them. They actually made a a living. And Paul's looking at them saying, we did that, but we didn't have to, did we? And they're like, no, no, no. You absolutely deserve to be paid by us. But Paul said, I I chose a different way so that there would be no obstacle. You see the point that he's getting at? I'm asking you to choose to look at your brothers and sisters in Christ and in true maturity in Christ to not defend your rights, what you get to do as somebody that's free in Christ, but to lay those rights down so that the gospel can take deep root in other people. I want you to be aware of the people around you. I want you to be aware of the soil on which the gospel is landing. And I want you, rather than having knowledge which puffs up, this is chapter 8 verse 2, Nope, verse one. Rather than having knowledge that puffs up, I want you to have love that builds up. I want that to be the overriding ethic of every single follower of Jesus that finds maturity is that you would understand love. I'm here to help the gospel take root in your life. This is less about me and more about you. This is less about me and more about you. I'm gonna lay myself down so that Christ might increase in your life. For me to live as Christ, to die as gain, Paul tells the Philippians. He tells the Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I'm not here for my own gain, for my own life, for me to get what I can get out of this physical life. I am here to serve my Lord. Uh, I was talking with my dad about this. Um, he's actually preaching in Thousand Oaks today uh, I think he's going to be here at some point in uh, July or August, which you'll get to hear from him, and that's exciting. Um, but one of the things that we were talking about is just the, like the the arc of maturity as a follower of Jesus. You start off as a slave to sin before you give your life to Jesus, right? Paul talks about that uh, in, in to the Ephesians, to the Romans. He talks about how we were dead in our trespasses and sins; we were slaves to sin. And then there's this this salvation that comes to us, and we start to understand our freedom in Christ, that we are no longer slaves to sin, that now all of a sudden we can choose righteousness, and we can start to walk free from the bondage of sin, and and we sort of like crest at this understanding of our new identity, our new freedom, our new joy that we find in Christ. And then he said, but maturity doesn't stop there. And he was kind of walking me through this. He said, true maturity actually goes down the other side of that arc and returns to slavery. Free choice to be enslaved to Christ for his service in this life is the epitome of maturity in the Christian life. See, it's not about me and my freedom and what I get from being a follower of Jesus. It's actually about how I can lay my life down To serve those around me that the gospel might take root in their life. When Paul writes to the Philippians and he says to consider others more important than yourselves, he's basically saying you've arrived at this place of enjoying the freedoms of Christ and now I want you to lay yourself down and consider others more important than yourselves. Think about their faith. And how the gospel is taking root in their life. This is the mark of maturity. I want you to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. He tells the Ephesians in chapter 4. To the Romans in chapter 12, he says, uh, I want as far as it depends on you to live peaceably with all. As you find maturity in Christ, you're able to sort of, I'm going to use kind of modern terminology, rise above yourself. And realize that there is a much bigger story at play than you. That you're a part of something way bigger than you. You're a part of the community of the saints. And God has truly blessed you with such faith and security. Such hope and reality that Jesus is real. That you are saved. That your heart is secured for eternity, for all time. And that he is with you today. That you don't need anything. That you can be content. Paul says, I know how to be brought high. And I I know how to be brought low. I know abundance, and I know know what it means to be in need, he tells the Philippians. But I can do all things through him who gives me strength. That's Philippians 4.13. Paul's talking about this like, I don't don't need anything anymore. I've learned, as I've grown in Christ, how to lay down my life so that others can be built up in him. Now, what I want to do I want to fast forward to 1 Corinthians 13, and I know, I realize I'm I'm totally like, spoiler alert, we're going farther ahead in 1 Corinthians. Somebody else is going to teach this down the line, but I want to go to 1 Corinthians 13 to the really familiar part. Anybody going to some weddings this summer? All right, here's how you can show off. We're going to go ahead First 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 4. And I want you to think about this passage, not with the marriage relationship in mind, not with romance and, and a husband and a wife and that kind of a thing. I want you to think about it in the context of laying down our lives so that others can be built up in Christ. In love, serving ourselves up so that the gospel can take root in the lives of other people. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting in verse 4. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Paul's writing to a church and he's saying, my goal for you is maturity in Christ. If you have any hope of arriving at maturity in Christ, it's that as you grow in your knowledge of Christ, you're going to be able to lay down that knowledge in love to help the gospel take root in the lives of others. Paul is not anti-knowledge. He's all about knowledge. That's why I read Ephesians 4. There's a knowledge component to growing in maturity. But what Paul tells the Corinthians in chapter 8 is that knowledge without love, that knowledge just puffs up. That's all about you. That's not about those around you. But when we learn how to love, that knowledge actually leads us to love others, to help them build up their faith that's when we're understanding the fullness of what Christ has invited us into. So now let's go to verses 15 through 18 and finish this passage off. Chapter 9. Sorry, I'm all over the place. First Corinthians 9, verses 15 through 18. Paul says, But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Paul's like, I'm making a point here. And I don't want you to be able to rob me of that point. All right? So I am telling you, I would rather die than anyone take away the fact that I came to you free of charge. All right? So that's what what he's saying there. He says, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship what then is my reward that in my preaching i may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel basically i just want to lay this out one of the things that paul is communicating part of this is his apostolic ministry and his contextual choice with the corinthians so it's not that we look at this and we're just like okay no preacher ever under any circumstances is allowed to make a dime off the gospel that that's not what paul has said he's made this huge point That anybody that preaches the gospel has a right to make a living off the gospel. And that he himself laid that right down. But ultimately what he's trying to say in these final verses is that the gospel itself is the reward. That what we gain from Christ is not about, and I'm just going to use a couple of things here on this arc. It's not about us and our freedoms, our personal worship experiences, the joy that we get to experience as being a part of the body, uh, the fulfillment of knowing that we have it right, it's not about those things, but it's about finding ourselves in true maturity, being able to lay those things down and say, okay, how can I actually help others walk more confidently and completely in the gospel of Jesus? If I'm looking around this church and saying, this place is not ultimately for me and my benefit, but I'm here to actually serve my brothers and sisters in Christ and help the gospel take root. I'm here to go out to those places where there's darkness, where there's brokenness, where there's hopelessness in the world. I'm I'm helping them understand the nature of the gospel and helping it find root in their life. That is the ultimate expression of maturity in Christ is when we can get past ourselves and join the mission of Jesus and the community of Jesus to express our faith in him. Let me pray for us and we'll talk about how we're going to respond to this. Jesus, thank you so much for the opportunity for us to be in your word. I just pray that you would shape a a maturity in us. Lord, one that um, is not proud or not arrogant, that's not self-seeking, that doesn't envy, that doesn't boast, but that ultimately finds its greatest joy in building up our brothers and sisters in Christ in seeing those that don't know you find their way back to you. Helping this Lost and hurting world, experience your presence in a real intangible way. Jesus, I pray for this church. I pray that you would build it up, that this summer would be a summer uh, of deep ministry, a faithful expression of our freedom in you that we can lay down our rights and serve our brothers and sisters, serve those that don't know you. Put ourselves out there so that others can find their roots in you. Lord, in that, I pray that you would be deepening our roots. That each of us, as we grow in knowledge, as we grow in uh, in experience, that you would be giving us a depth of understanding, a depth of knowledge that continues. These qualities are yours and they are increasing. They will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in the knowledge of our Lord. Deepen us, Jesus. Help us to know more of who you are. We love you. We praise you. Thank you for leading us into a life where service is your story. Help us to live your story, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, as uh, a family of churches, there are a few ways that we respond to the gospel when it's been preached. Uh, one of them, one of the key components of our, our response is communion. Uh, each and every week we take communion. We make it available over here and we encourage you as a, uh, as a family as a couple, as a community group, as a row of people, maybe you don't know the people around you, but to participate in the body of Christ together, there's a sense of uh, of togetherness that goes into that. Now, we are the body of Christ, and we're built on the finished work of Jesus, and in communion, we are reflecting on the finished work of Jesus, his body given up for us, and his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So we'll take communion. Uh, we take offering. We have offering available. You can drop that, Alex, in the back. Yep, in the back on the way out. Thank you, Tiffany. Uh, There is a a box available. If you don't do your giving online and you do that physically, it's uh, available to give in that box. We encourage a life of generosity. That's a big part of our story. Over the next few months, you'll be hearing uh, about Celebrate Generosity and the story that God's written on our churches over these years. In fact, I get to be back here in uh, August, September to just share the heart of Celebrate Generosity and where that came from and why that's a part of our story. Um, But we make that a part of our everyday life as opposed to an event. So if you're uh, giving, we want to encourage you to give there. Our prayer teams will be here to minister in the corners. Uh, We were joking about flight attendant status. We'll be right here up at the front uh, available. And here's the point of the prayer team. Whenever there's a, a church gathering, it's for the body. But we also understand that the Spirit just wants to connect with us and meet with us in a unique way. Like That's just part of how he speaks to us, and and these prayer moments, you just go. You can either give a prayer request, or honestly, you can just go and say, would you pray for me? We trust the Spirit of God uh, to to bring to life the things that need to be brought to life in those moments. So we want to pray for you. It's a privilege, it's an honor, and we encourage you to take full advantage of that. And finally, we respond in singing. Uh, One of the things that I know to be true is that you're going to walk out of here, and you're not going to be remembering the words that I say necessarily, like specific things that I say, but you will go out of here singing the songs that we sing. So it's really important to us that the truth of these songs, that it, that it builds up what God is teaching us in our lives. And so we sing as a way to teach and reflect on and minister to God and to one another. So why don't we stand together and let's respond in worship to what Jesus is doing today.